This is Trebuchet Talks, an increasingly regular podcast that teases the new out of the often recycled world of contemporary art. As always, we aim to go further and find the weird beyond the white walls of gallery land. I'm Kailash, and I'm coming to you from Trebuchet Towers in the Tier 4 heart of northwest London, where Christmas is done and we take a deep breath before 2021. In this episode, we have an interview with artist, musician, main man, and mon ami, the jazz devil himself, Barry Adamson. But first, here's our underutilised, ace-up-the-sleeve, Megan Grace Hughes. Hello, how you doing? So, as you might know, I work for the London Institute for Advanced Light Technologies, which is a... Really? Ne- yeah, I do. It's a research network for scientists and artists, mainly based in London, but we have members from all over the world. It's part of the uh, grant that I work on. We always celebrate the International Day of Light, which is on the 16th of May, and... The 16th of May was chosen because that was the date of the first operation of a laser in the 60s. We normally hold events, usually in person. So we've been trying to decide what to do this year because obviously we can't do any in-person events. So we've come up with a 24-hour Zoom call where we're getting people from all over the world and we're going to have people coming into the Zoom call and training a webcam kind of out of their window or pointed to their workspace And we're going to record that Zoom call and then basically record the light across the world as it changes. So that's what we're kind of testing at the moment. And we'll be running the live event on the 16th of May, which I think is pretty cool. Like it seems like it's going to go like we've had lots of interest and people seem to be digging things that are a bit different. The other thing that we're doing is we're asking people to send in short videos about light. So it could be an art project or it could be just... I don't know, a short video of the light catching on a blade of grass or something like that. And we're asking people to send in these short videos and then we'll have a panel of experts to explain the concepts, the scientific concepts um, explored in them. And we're going to have artists involved as well. I believe you're going to be on the panel as well. Indeed I am. Sounds amazing. Exactly. So we're going to have a lot of people kind of just talking about light, the way it interacts, science, art and hopefully we can get more people joining the institute of advanced light technologies from various kind of fields because we're always looking for new members who've got really exciting things to share so the academic that i'm working with on this at um, king's is dr james millen who was on our previous podcast he's a really instrumental member of uh, london light so he, he actually came up with the idea for the zoom call so um yeah i'm really looking forward to it i'm really looking forward to just seeing what happens and how how this piece is going to kind of be received by people. So yeah, I'm really excited actually. We probably will have a live YouTube stream. However, I'm not suggesting that that will be the main way of uh, digesting the piece. We're, we're going to speed it up. So we'll speed it up into a very digestible, quick uh, video that, that people can um, share if they've been involved or, or just look at or that sounds really good. Yeah, so yeah, I think I think we're looking at um, a, a very sped up video because twenty four hour piece of artwork is, you know, maybe we could have that in a in a gallery at some point, you know, where people just walk in and. So I've got um I've got a webcam trained out my window at the moment and it's very very dark. Uh, <laughs> uh so it's just going to be interesting to see how how it changes around the world, um over 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 time really. And your New Year's Eve plans. So my New Year's Eve plans, I've got a very cool laser that I bought from Maplin's before it's sadly uh, closed that I can put on my ceiling and just pretend that I'm in a club because, you know, 2020, 2021, there's going to be no going out. To be honest, I'm not, I've never really been a New Year's Eve kind of person. I've always found it a bit of a letdown. I've always had great nights where it's just like kind of random. I'll go out for one drink after work and then several drinks later when the sun rises. So... Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I find New Year's Eve's a bit strange. Well, all that sounds marvellous. I hope you get up to something truly brilliant and have a very happy New Year. Thank you very much. Happy New Year. So, by the sound of head scratching and pencil chewing, here's an update from the print room. We're still very busy working on the next edition of Trebuchet Materials, which asks what materials mean to the process of making art. Featuring exclusive interviews, articles and art with such amazing creative minds like Gavin Turk, Gilbert and George, Herman Nitsch, Dylan Martinez, Richard Stone, 
Barbara Carsten, Gail Olding, Tacita Dean, and Gerhard Richter. We're aiming to have the print editions out in January 2021, so subscribe today. As regular listeners might know, Trebuchet started a discussion about how artists could reach a broader audience and how we might help facilitate building a network of fledgling art collectors. For issue 9, we're sending out a signed and numbered limited edition print of The Other Side by Mark Batty. Mark Batty's work is influenced by Astronomy and the Cosmos, where we explore the intersections of science and representation. The print itself is a beautiful example of this, and you can read and see more about it on the subscriber print page. So, how to get your hands on real art? Simply visit the Trebuchet shop, subscribe, add the subscriber print of your choice to the basket, check out, and it's done. All subscribers receive the current issue of Trebuchet by default. However, if you have a preference for another issue, let us know prior to payment and we'll amend your order accordingly. We say prior because we make every effort to have your order packed and sent as soon as humanly possible. Post may take a while because of COVID, Christmas and staff shortages, but we try and do what we can to make sure there's no delays from our end. And now the segment you've all been waiting for, subscriber shoutouts. As a bit of a fun bonus for subscribers and backers, we're going to give something of an informative and hopefully intriguing shout out as a way of saying thanks for supporting us. While it goes without saying that all subscribers, listeners, iTunes commenters, sharers, and however you choose to support us, get our heartiest thanks. Something extra special goes to subscribers and Patreon supporters who make it possible for us to keep doing what we're doing. At £3, subscribers get a punchy phrase pulled at random from the current book. Subscribers who offer £7 get a grappling sentence. And those generous patrons and subscribers who commit to the highest amount will receive a full round of wordage. Jumping into the final tier, we have a, quite a few of these, so we're just doing a few each time. As with the previous podcast, we're reading from Graham Harmon's Object-Oriented Ontology, A New Theory of Everything. Graham Harmon is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at SciArc Los Angeles, a key figure in the contemporary speculative realism movement, and is well known for his development of the field of object-oriented ontology. Our first quote goes to the University of Lincoln. Thank you very much. If we believe the OED's definition, the best remedy for our supposedly post-truth condition would be objective facts. Our next quote goes to Sarah H. Thank you very much, Sarah. The quadruple object. There are two kinds of objects and two kinds of qualities. Real and sensual in both cases. Real objects and qualities exist in their own right, while sensual objects and qualities exist only as the correlate of some real object, whether human or otherwise. Up next, a quote from Mr. Pepple. Thank you very much, Mr. Pepple. Let this suffice for a basic overview of ontography, the part of Tripolo that explores the rifts between the two kinds of objects and their two kinds of qualities. Our next quote goes to Mr. Sherman. Causation. The reader might now be wondering about possible permutations of objects and qualities that we did not mention. What about qualities interacting with qualities? Or objects with objects? Does this play no role in Triple O? Of course it does. Our final shout-out for this episode goes to Tanya Wallace. Thank you, Tanya. Knowledge. Earlier in this book, Triple O was distinguished from the two basic forms of knowledge. What a thing is made of, and what it does. More than this, I suggested that philosophy and the arts are a form of cognition without being forms of knowledge. This may have been startling to some readers. All right, so there it is. That's it for the print room update for this episode. Thanks for dropping by and wearing a mask. In this postcard from a gallery, we have a chat with the writer Millie Walton. Millie is a London-based writer and editor. She has contributed to a broad range of arts and cultural publications, as well as collaborating with artists and galleries globally. She's currently writing fiction and poetry when she's not contributing to Trebuchet. For Trebuchet, she's been writing about contemporary art as it exists before, during and after lockdown. So 2020, what has lockdown meant for your London? For lockdown, I actually spent most of it in Dorset um, rather than in London, which was I well I spent I so so I began in London um and then moved to Dorset when I felt like I needed more space. I suppose lockdown for me was was an interesting time in the sense that everyone kept saying, Oh, this will be a brilliant 
time to focus on your writing. And I actually found that it wasn't, to be honest. Um, I found that it sort of filled me with dread. I suppose the sort of pressure of having all this time um, to write didn't really work for me. Uh, but going to Dorset actually did really help in having the headspace. And so I ended up I ended up seeing most exhibitions in terms of art online. I did see quite a few exhibitions before I left and before sort of lockdown happened. But after that, it was mainly viewing art online, which was an interesting experience because obviously some art translates really well online, you know, if it's video art or um, sort of digital things. But... Um, some of it doesn't particularly or that or you lose something um but i think what i think what's been really fascinating just generally sort of about lockdown is and is sort of the way that london uh, or sort of culture has changed and adapted so quickly and i th i think actually it particularly in relation to the student exhibitions, the art exhibitions. And as I'm, well, as I'm sure you're aware, obviously they didn't happen in person or, or they, they were sort of delayed and they're happening this year, so with Central St. Martins, etc. But I was really impressed by all these digital platforms that popped up, whether it was through the school itself or whether it was uh, through the students or through smaller galleries who opened up all these digital platforms and said, you know, we want to show your art. And again, I'm sure that was extremely frustrating for some of the artists because, you know, their work didn't translate very well and they weren't able to meet and talk to people. But at the same time, it made art more reachable. I mean, sort of demo democratic in a way, wider audiences um, being able to see it. And I think also with digital art, text became quite important, which... Um, Oh, but yes. again, I'm sure lots of artists hate that about it is that they have to, you know, have all this accompanying text uh, talking about their practice or the particular artwork. But I think I think that was a really interesting and different way to view art rather than being in a gallery where you might just have a very small blurb or you might pick up, you know, a, a catalogue or whatever it is. But online, it means that you can click on the artwork and then you can click through to the artist and you can read about the artist, you can read their statement, you can read about their processes. It was, yeah, it was a very a different way of viewing art and a different way of sort of presenting it, I'm sure, for the artists themselves. Who do you think, were there any that stand out as being particularly successful? Online exhibitions. Yes, or any, um, anything in, think, in this year, really? Yeah. Uh, yes, well, I think... Well, so before before lockdown, if we sort of go back to physical exhibitions, one of the exhibitions that I really loved seeing was Jacqueline de Jong, um, her exhibition Resiliences. And she, I actually had the, I was very fortunate to meet her before the exhibition, which I think does really influence the experience of viewing the art because I got to speak to her in detail and it sort of gave me a more layered perspective um, of what she does and how she approaches making the works. But she was in the Situationist International, which was this sort of avant-garde literary and art group in the 60s and 70s. And she, her work is really sort of chaotic and impulsive. And I just, I found it amazing viewing her work and um, sort of, how paint could be writhing on the canvas like literally it felt felt like it was sort of moving um before my eyes and i also saw shirin neshat at goodman gallery which was also brilliant it was land of dreams uh, which is a series of photographs and a film and the film itself was really sort of whilst it is an art film it's also really narrative so you sit down and it does feel like you're being taken on a journey um and actually i think it's being shown again in new york i think this year or i mean yeah. 2021 um but that was fascinating but i think in terms of online exhibitions uh probably the hershon was the best or is the best it's still on there the hershon has oh, yeah. a sort of online series. Yeah, and actually it's something that I'm 
I have written something about for, uh, for Trebuchet, in fact. <laughs> um, but it's it's an online series of exhibitions which are mainly focused on sort of animation and technologies and thinking about history, which I think is particularly interesting at the moment, given that everyone's sort of thinking about coronavirus and the pandemic as this historic moment and how is it going to be remembered. And whilst the exhibition wasn't about the pandemic, thank goodness, um, it was sort of looking at artists whose practice involves rewriting history. So people like William Kentridge, for example, um, and being able to watch his, his film online just really easily, you know, go on, watch it for free, click and you open it full screen and then just sit there and watch it. It's amazing. It's a really amazing opportunity. Um, and they've got loads of films on at the moment on that on their website, uh, which I really recommend tuning into. Yeah, that's interesting. There has been a, I suppose, with such a big blanket global event like lockdown, it does seem to co-opt all artworks into its kind of orbit in a sense that everything suddenly becomes referent to lockdown. Yeah. One of the big things I've experienced is that so many artists are suddenly asking, well, I didn't start out to create this work to be about lockdown, but I can suddenly see it being so relevant to fragmented people, fragmented society, people investigating and um, themselves through various types of introspection. Have you found that in your own percep perception? Yeah. I, I definitely have. And it's interesting what you're saying, because I've also spoken to artists and even in terms of materials, actually, I think that was an interesting thing Like some, an artist I was speaking to yesterday, who is a really young artist called Cla uh, Clara Hastrup. She uses everyday materials and has always done that. But she says suddenly that the materials that she's using have become extremely symbolic because uh, because of the pandemic. So things like, well, the most obvious one being like toilet roll, but, um, but loads of different materials too, the things that we are looking at and using more regularly. Um, well, not more regularly, but sort of paying more attention to because our world has sort of collapsed inwards a bit, I suppose. If you're when going back to your question, when you're saying has it sort of changed my perspective? I, yeah, I think it has. I mean, going back to, for example, the Hershon exhibition, whilst those uh, films aren't, as I said, they're not about the pandemic. It's, it, I guess I am thinking all the time in my own writing and looking at artworks, how they will be viewed in the future. Um, which is quite strange because I, I mean, <laughs> that's always there, you know, that's always something that uh, we could be thinking about, you know, how will this work be received in 10 or 20 years or whatever. But I think because of this sort of monumental time that we're in, everything suddenly feels like it's a proper record of it. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you've read Summer by Ali Smith, but I suppose that was the most direct reference to this period of time that I've encountered in the sense that it sort of really talks about the pandemic head on. Yeah. Um, and I actually even, and I, I thought that I might find that too much at this particular time because I'm living it, but yeah. I didn't. I actually found it gave me a lot of clarity because it's such a confusing time. It's really hard to sort of get any perspective when you're living in the moment and then to see it whether it's through art you know visual arts or through writing can be really helpful i think really clarifying there is a global sense of awareness about where we are and how we live it's been brought you know normally i suppose when you're traveling around and big rush of society and meeting people you're often uh, people often lose themselves within that but lockdown has certainly brought us a lot closer mm. to the material realities of our lives from toilet roll onwards i suppose yeah and and when people are thinking about their own work and how they write and what they write about the the impact of that and how that will sit over time is suddenly something people think about a lot more i mean you were saying you're a you're, yeah. you're working on a book so I, I can imagine yes. that the practice of doing that has 
changed? I don't know if you've just started it during lockdown, but have you noticed that anything within your your practice of writing has changed? I have actually been writing the book for about three years, but so when so when lockdown happened, I did stop writing it for quite a long time. I suppose about three months, which for me, I generally try and write every day, or at least sort of be in the writing zone, which can sometimes mean looking out the window for a while. But <laughs> with, this, <laughs> with this particular book, I found that I, I actually found it really hard to connect to the narrative. And at this, it kind of threw me into really anxious state for a while because I didn't it didn't feel relevant, I guess, to me, because it was a time before coronavirus. And now I don't feel that I think it was it, it happened just because um, because every you know all the news was happening. There was this big rush of sort of things to do with people being in hospital and unwell. And writing a book seemed irrelevant and of any kind, you know, any kind of book. And and now I don't feel that at all. I think you know art of any kind is extremely important in these particular moments in history. And has my has the narrative changed it hasn't changed um i think that possibly having a break from it has given me a new drive and and this time has given me a new drive to get it finished mainly which is exciting and a really um I really needed that to be honest. Because I've been <laughs> a long time with it, so I needed I needed something to push me forward. Well, that sounds very positive. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, it is, I think. Dipping back into art, and uh, maybe a final question is thinking about rising stars of twenty twenty and. Anything you can forecast for 2021? Yes, I am very excited about an artist called Sahela Sokhanvai. She's an Iranian artist who creates uh, miniature paintings. And they're sort of, she uses the tradition of Persian miniature painting, but it's through very contemporary colours and sort of imagery and symbolism. But she is. She normally is looking at the part, the past in Iran. So, sort of refiguring, uh, figure, uh, refiguring people from um, the media in Iran, and thinking how we might perceive them now, or uh, how she would remember them. And I think her work has always been really relevant. But I think it is even more relevant now, actually. Um, exactly to do with everything we've been talking about but it's it's very beautiful it's very layered and she does have a few exciting projects coming up um which i don't know if i'm allowed to say what they are so <laughs> i won't um but then another artist as well who's really young is called peter spanger and he is uh he had his first solo exhibition this year uh, he's a video artist and his work is mainly about uh, the black male experience and sort of in relation to masculinity and fragility. And he creates his work by filming footage himself and also weaving that in with found uh, found materials uh, in terms of sound and, and visuals. And it's, his work is extremely powerful. And I think we'll probably be seeing a lot more of him around. Mm. Um, another artist is Sophia Mitsola, who I know actually Trebuchet has featured before, and she's possibly less, uh, well, probably the better known, I guess. Um, but she is, I just think her work, particularly to me as a woman, is really resonating in the way that she uh, thinks about mythology and narratives and uh, depictions of women. And her work is so sort of sensual at the same time as being monstrous. And I just, yes. it's very hard to look away from her paintings. Absolutely. And I think she will, I think will be still at all her. Yes. Well, Millie Walton, thank you very much for speaking to Trebuchet. Do you have any uh, big plans uh, for, twin, for New Year's Eve? I am hopefully going to be in Ireland if I can get there. Um, in Northern Ireland, but otherwise, no, I shall 
just be having a nice quiet evening in, I think. <laughs> Probably like all of us. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. And so without further ado, we have our featured talk with Barry Adamson. Just a, a quick background on, on some of the fantastic and amazing things that you've done over the course of, of an illustrious career that is still in progress. Self-taught musician who rose to prominence as bass player in the post-punk band magazine, as well as stints in Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Visage, and a, and a wealth of other bands that many people have heard of. Also, most notably as, a, as an award-winning and, and nominated solo artist whose work, Moss Side Story, uh, really struck a chord with, think, with listeners all around the world, which led on to a lot of working as a, a soundtrack artist for artists and auteurs such as Derek Jarman, David Lynch. Oliver Stone and Danny Boyle. Currently, you're working on a, a number of things, which you'll discuss a bit more. And uh, welcoming you to the stage virtually, we've got a number of images where we wanted to talk about your the, the surreal influences that have, have shaped your processes as an artist. And I don't know, a, a mixture of eclectic things that have been kind of mashed together in, in all your work, which have always been brought together, which seem as a, as a unified package. But once you start unpicking it, there's a lot of stuff going on there. So without further ado, we've got leading with the first image. Are you ready, Mr. Adams? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here we have Minstrel. Yeah, and oh. I, I know that tickles you. <laughs> when we were talking about it, you said it was very eye-opening. And I thought exactly. that uh, to describe it, you know, what better way to talk about surrealism uh, in that it's like such an eye-opening. You know, and yeah. uh, as James pointed out, the juxtaposition of illogical scenes right in that picture for me is so evident. It's like there are these white men with cut up black faces almost pasted on to the front of them. And I yeah. think at the time, as a young boy uh, living in late 50s, early 60s Manchester, um, it was a very sort of slate gray black and white world so this image literally sort of popping out of the screen and uh, imposing itself uh, onto uh, my family in particular was with, uh, you know i saw uh yeah the juxtaposition of, of of how disturbing and the sort of idea that all of these people were really yeah. the, the black and white minstrel and their songs their, their sort of gaiety of song uh, you know, and and all I could you know think about was like my dad talking about like lynchings in America. So as a kind of piece of art, it sort of it sort of implanted something in my mind how this thing that's sort of like conscious can kind of get at the unconscious and kind of bring it out as well. And and in this in this uh, instance, it's quite well for me. It's sort of quite nightmarish, you know, which I think yeah. are some components as well dreams turning into nightmares and, and this sort of thing as well with surrealism the, there is a an, i mean an aspect of minstrels which is uh, spike lee did that film bamboozled i think which explored that and they uh they're hugely popular for a really long time i think at the during the 70s and the 80s people would say well you know isn't isn't this a good representation of black people or something you know everyone seems to be having a good time uh, what's wrong with that? Yeah, yeah, you know, I hope you're not joining in with that popular sort of idea. Sorry. No, uh, but I but think I, I those, those people that were asked were of a, of a certain <laughs> kind of mindset. And of course, as well, you know, I yeah. will kind of give a little bit of to the sort of the idea of song as entertainment and you know gaiety and and that that sort of that kind of song as well, that, that was the standard of the era uh, as well. Uh, but I, you know, you can't help but sort of now in, in hindsight, sort of go like, whoa, you know, yeah. like, but what, what the hell was going on in the world anyway? Sort of like that, that it's, it's an acceptable thing. Yeah. So, I mean- Very surreal. Yes. I mean, that's a, uh, a representation of, of people that, uh, well, it's a you know it's a appropriation, it's misappropriation, misrepresentation 
yeah. then from that, that kind of idea of, of weirdness, you, yeah, yeah, you exactly. have man ray. Yeah, I mean, I guess with this image, there is sort of it's if you like it, a kind of flip on yeah. going on for me as well. It was something that was quite alluring and sort of really drew me in, like the the idea of the of the. Uh, I mean, there's a simple idea there, which is the, the most incredible thing about it, which is, you know, a, a woman just holding a mask. But then, of course, the nature of surrealism is that it's, it's digging deeper and it's bringing yeah. us to the surface that, that you wouldn't find anywhere else, possibly. So there we have a conversation between, yes, what is seen as European civilization, sort of like the primitiveness of the African. And yeah. it's also the way it's placed as well, uh, the way the mask right in front of her shoulder it's almost like the head forms part of her body as well so there's a there's a little playfulness i think around the idea of perhaps desire and also perhaps that the whole thing melded together uh comments that perhaps we both carry sort of beauty and savagery at the the same time and also but but when this this photograph is taken as well i think man ray is so clever he's very aware of how provocative that is as well in terms of the desire aspect. There's a uh, thing around the time that, that the photo was taken. Yeah. Um, I can't read off the top of my head, but I think when, when it was, there was still an association with the African masks and the sense of the, the, the natural and the unconscious and the and those aspects of Freudian psycho, psychoanalysis uh, associated with kind of sexuality and all those repressed things that nice society didn't want to think about. Exactly. But, so there is that that kind of play there between the woman sleeping and her uh, her undefined dreams, and and Man Ray is a master at expressing that. Does it? Is that exactly one, uh, black men, oh, as they saw it, maybe I don't know. Maybe, yeah. And what particularly about this work spoke to you in your development? Well, I don't know. I guess as a sort of fledgling artist in some way, you know, it spoke to me in terms of all those things that I start to see in you know underneath really like under the surface of what it actually and i understood it you know and i, I guess as well you know i i come from a background of you know a white mother and yeah. a black so possibly you know that one of the first times i saw like a black and a white face in the same frame uh probably apart from them in my childhood you know there's the racial social distancing was very prevalent at the time you know but i and i just love the the this is this is something alluring and beautiful about it and and yeah like you said the, the sleepiness and the mask and all of that stuff is just intertwined beautiful yeah with your um your years in, in manchester yeah um i was wondering you know your music and your photography and and uh, a lot of your work's been associated with a kind of cinematic feel um either through soundtracks or you know, sometimes the narrative that appears in your work. If you were to uh, to think about your formative years in, in Mossside or and, and Manchester, could you describe a few scenes for us in a cinematic Barry Adamson style that, you know, that stand out? If I may add sort of poetic license, you know, I, I think yeah, as sure. I said before, there's a very kind of slate gray, black and white cobble street with a sort of noir feel i suppose and the perhaps the sort of moonlight bouncing off the the rooftops and illuminating the place and my dad kind of like stomping around like some demented sydney poitier figure <laughs> they call me mr adamson something like this and then you know the music is has this noirish feel as well there was a strip club down the road so every night when you sort of go to bed and you're just dropping off you hear boom cha, boom boom cha. You know, which uh, is not unlike a lot of my songs. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> and so there's there's this sort of uh, that, and that's that's you know the juxtaposition and the weirdness is going on as well with the minstrels blaring away in the background. And um, you know, so it it I, I took this as a sort of like the the language that I would use to, as a sort of like a, you know extension of myself, expression of myself later right. down. I can kind of see now going back that all of that stuff kind of fed into the, the narrative of, of, the, of the work that I do. Amazing. Let's have a look at the next picture. What have we got? So here we have uh, some Man Ray and, and, and a, 
a Dali piece. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned a, a Dali exhibition in 1978. Yeah. Talking early. Did you go and see that in Paris or was it just a, an echo of it that reached you at the right time? No, I, I went to the to the Pompidou Centre in Paris. Uh, I was uh, sort of in the middle of a kind of you know punk art explosion, and, and I think I think I, I think I went with a friend. I think he was going out with a French girl at the time, and I sort of said, "Oh, I'll come," you know, because and then I just bombed it off to the the Pompidou Centre, and it was just one of the most incredible things I've ever seen, and it, it sort of like moved right away from all that sort of the you know that that sort of what felt kind of well, I guess you know there's just the, the, there's the Manchester way and then suddenly the world opened up through art you know and I can remember walking in and there was this huge huge room and it was uh, it had been changed uh, turned into a, an enormous kitchen except everything was on the ceiling so uh, all the appliances and everything was on the ceiling so suddenly you were, you were like you know didn't know whether to flip yourself over and then you kind of you also noticed that the the knives and the forks and the spoons were sort of about 10 foot long. So they were going across you and you thought things were going to fall on you at the same time. So it's totally sort of fucked with gravity. And there was all the stuff was there, the melting clocks, you know, everything, huge format stuff. It was absolutely incredible. And then I went into this smaller room and down a corridor and I came across the piece on the right, which is actually, uh, it's not a photograph, it's not a painting, it's an actual moving thing that's there and i sort of as i walk closer to it the 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 heart in the middle of the other crowned heart started to beat and pulsate and i was just like transfixed by it i mean it's a very again a very simple idea but it had this other thing about you know it, it seemed illogical and it seemed and i don't know how he, they did it you know it was just but it spoke of something and uh, i think it's part of a, a set by Dali called the the jewels, uh, of course. It really left this sort of impre impression on me, and I sort of went back, kind of full full of sort of ideas about stuff. You know, and I still do that today. Last year, I kind of bombed it off to to Rome to see some uh, Benini sculpture. So it sounds a bit like, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, but I and I needed to go, you know, just to sort of fill up this this you know, reservoir of stuff. But no, it was just absolutely fantastic. And then back in, I mean, you you're as part of magazine and, and at that time there was a real uh explosion as you're saying of art and part of that is is linda um could you describe how you first did i imagine you knew her mm. yeah and I, I found something very freeing in her work because you know this whole kind of black and white world and minstrels and not you know and all that sort of stuff was kind of plagued me but it was like guided by her scalpel there was yeah. this other way which was about sort of forging your own identity um she was kind of like in, you know she would take like men's magazines of the time women's magazines of the time cut them out stick them together forming a new thing you know yeah. that again the juxtaposition and it was so freeing to sort of see her work and to be around her you know and uh, yeah. also to sort of you know and it helped me to then so, sort of form what was to become my, you know, probably like work identity and life identity outside of uh, being, uh, dare I say it, shot by both sides. And, uh, and uh, so, yeah, and, and that sort of, you know, there was a, a magazine called The Secret Public that John Savage put together and it was full of these ideas and you felt like as well as the connectedness of punk there was yeah. also this this like fucking up of our, of identity and yeah. gender and she was like so so ahead of her time apparently she uh, i don't know if you were there she put on a, a incredibly controversial and and shocking show at the factory i think where she you know wrapped pieces of meat i think in, in, men, in men's magazines and and had uh tampons on everything and I think she was in uh, the story goes that she was incensed by something on the BBC where um, I think Buck's Fizz were kind of jokingly disrobed or something by some yeah. presenters, something yeah. like that. She was yeah. a real, a real uh, statement against just this horrific sexism yeah. on television. Yeah, I think I was, I think I, it, it sounds like, did she have a huge phallus as well? That's right. Yeah. She, yeah. 
and I was there. And then and I think she followed that up with a meat dress, which was really seemed shocking as well until Lady Gaga. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, a, a genuine one-off, you know. <laughs> that goes of her work in, in the other image as well, like Penny Slinger, who's uh, who's an English artist who moved out to LA, but very strong sort of, you know, uh, uh, gender politics sort of yeah. smack face, you know. See what you say, I think that picture's called. Cool. What do we say here? <laughs> the surrealism of, of our, our Middle East peace envoy. Yeah, I think, you know, it's great when, like, artists sort of, you know, they go, great, you know. It, and that's a, a, a shocking image for people who aren't into art, I suppose, you know. Yeah. Art, like, just puts this stuff together. He did a great Thatcher one at the time as well it was just like out there like you know, nuclear sort of stuff coming out of her note and the rest of it and i just think it's uh it, it's so beautifully put rather than writing like, well it seems like you know blair's really, yeah, yeah. it's just it's just there you know to see and the look on his face at the time and and that idea now that that, that you know the selfie idea as well so it's so sort of poignant and kind of futuristic for the time yeah there's, uh, you've mentioned as an influence, um, the kind of cut-up technique of Brian Tyson yeah. and Burroughs. And certainly in a lot of these works and, and Linda's work in particular, there are, you know, references to the weirding these kind of commercial images of gender and identity with, uh, you know, a, a, an iron for a head there, which was, uh, you know, a symbol of, of, of domesticity or, or domestic mm -hmm. work life over the top of a sexualized image. Um, and then this image as well, which is juxtaposing, you know, a selfie in front of what I think a burning oil field, but yeah. uh, I'm not sure. Hey, certainly, your, your first uh, few solo albums were heavily featured, uh, kind of cut up acoustic techniques, and, and, and was was that something you, you just felt like you always had to explore? And when given the chance with those those incredible solo albums to do that, could you describe some of that process for us? Sure. I was very excited by the the sampler. As the sampler came along, um, I was able to get at some of the ideas that were floating around my mind. Without sort of, it's a bit like the digital camera now. You know, suddenly you could. You know, we're all filmmakers. We don't have to sort of sell the idea to somebody and get a budget and all that. So I had this this one sampler, and and so then I I had all this, the stuff at my fingertips, and plus. You could put your own sounds in, into there as well, you know. And so I used it not to sort of create beats so much, but to create sort of like um, soundscapes and then, you know, put sort of music across there, which became a, a very exciting way for me to get at the images in my mind and the ideas that I wanted to discuss in the music. That really kept, kept me buoyant across those, those three albums of uh, Moss Side Story, Soul Murder, and Oedipus, particularly. With these, uh, I think you can see three images now, Mr. Babies and, and two, oh, Dali Poi. I'm going to, can't pronounce that particularly well. What is it about these artists that you particularly are drawn to, this, these works? Well, this, this is sort of like, I guess around the 70s, there's sort of lowbrow uh, movement. It's like, like yeah. pop, pop psychedelia. I think the last image belongs to a, a different section, which we'll talk about, which is Afro surrealism, which is, you know, is a sort of genre of, it, of its own. But I, I love this idea, like the pop psychedelia merging with the arts, the experience of the surrealist and how, therefore, I mean, that, that second middle image there of the sort of the wonder of kind of nature sitting on a rock, and then looking out at this overload of sort of, you know, well, it feels like an overload of like information to the eyes and the senses. It's again, it's like, it's so beautiful, simple, and who hasn't felt like that? And I think yeah. the, the beauty of surrealism is that it can take you out of the everyday into something else, but at the same time, it's not lost on you. You don't go like, whoa, you know, you've had that, we've all had that weirdness. We've all sort of experienced that, whatever it be, you know, just walking down the bloody street, you know. So I'm drawn to that, I guess. And then with the Afro-surrealists, uh, I think they, they're very committed to the idea that one day they were sort of happily wandering around in Africa and an alien came and took them 
to America. And therefore the expression, like this Lorna Simpson picture at the end of the, the war yeah. with the head on fire again. You know, I think I felt like that this afternoon, my head was on fire, you know, I was, and, I, but, and then there's a sort of unconscious, like there's the beauty thing again, going back to the yeah. man, but it's, it's kind of like, and then there's the forest, which suggests the sort of open plane that she could go into, you know? So I think that, that it's worth commenting as well uh, about, uh, you know, that, that as being a sort of movement within itself, which isn't particularly. Have you been uh, involved with that movement or how did it come to your attention? And, and just well, discover Things, yeah, things come to your attention as they're sort of meant to. And I guess it's still at heart being a sort of mixed race kid for where the, where the, the information is on, in, on both sides, black and white. So, you know, and I like to sort of take both of those, kind of, you know, wear them as this, this sort of, you know, if you like, Linderism identity that I was picked up on that you could do for yourself and you didn't have to follow anyone else's rules. You know, so, but they're they're kind of people I kind of bring to my bring to my sort of uh, artistic, you know, party. If I'm about to do anything, you know, I kind of lean on certain things. I think uh, actually, just uh, one of the audience member Mal's asked a really good question there that pulls on that. So you talk visually and and have chosen powerful imagery. Mm. Do you think in a visual way when you're producing music? Sometimes it's the other way around. You know, I kind of like. I, I, I'm working away with, with like unconsciously, and then suddenly what will become conscious is that's what I'm trying to do, um, that I'm walking into something and then it's going to change and something is going to hit me and then another influence might come in and I'll kind of run my unconscious checklist of what's going on and then surge forward with that. And I think there is a sort of like a visual sort of component to that because it's almost to do with like when you put music on a film it becomes the sort of the the, the 3d aspect if you like of the film so it, it touches the emotion so if i'm getting an emotional payoff with that and then able to sort of see beyond it just being sort of you know notes and you know, matter and energy coming out of the speakers which doesn't really exist going somewhere so is that one of your uh, kind of touchstone checklists if when you're listening yeah. to the music you're making if the movie yeah. starts to write itself, you, you know you're on the right track. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you're, you're chasing it down the street. You know, yeah. With sort of like, you know, fisherman's net, trying to grab it and bring it in. So we've got Lorna Simpson in front of us here. We've got some incredible kind of weirding images of, yeah. of light bulbs and faces that are... Yeah. Can you describe uh, this selection for us? Well, that, that's going back to the sort of Afro-surrealist movement, really. And it's very yeah. interesting the way uh, Lorna's sort of, uh, she's sort of unsympathetic and just sort of like, there's a, there's a, it's funny, there's echoes of, uh, of where Linda goes, you know, there's yeah. echoes of, of the, the cut-up technique, you know, and that idea of faces facing the wrong way is a very sort of head-spinning kind of idea. Yeah. Um, using both black and white imagery as well and this idea in the first picture of sort of you know pearls around the neck you know and the, the sort of just the way that the faces are juxtaposed as well i mean it's very uh, there's very kind of there's a lot there's a lot there's a lot going on there yeah. um i got a bit stuck at pearl necklace but um <laughs> moving on to the neck you know which i sort of suddenly was like whoa you know and i was kind of like whoa um but then in the next picture too, you know, there, there's sort of like this this looking forward with a, with an, another face trying to get out of the back, yeah, running away from from the light that she's holding as well because it's not real light; it's it's false, you know. Okay. I, mean, I, I think the beauty of the realism is that you can look look again and again and again. I didn't even realize something like looking at these pictures again. Yeah. Um. Question. Yeah, Mark, Mark's a, a guy I sort of like just got talking to really on Instagram. He was sort of talking to me quite a bit about Afro surrealism as well. And this is his work like today. I think the first one's like last week. And, oh, wow. um, yeah, so it's very, it's very, but I was interested, you know, like what's this guy in like Philadelphia wisely putting these images together? And he, he, he kind of come back 
if you like, to the same idea, the same sort of expression, the same juxtaposition of, of you know, weird sort of like, yeah, going back again to what James said, it's illogical, the logical yeah. scenes, you know. And I find, I just find his work quite interesting. Yeah, it, it uh, has that sense of form and shape where you're, you feel like you're almost grasping a meaning there and then you look closer and it seems to slip away from you. Exactly, yeah, just as you're getting an idea of what it's about. Yeah. Oh, maybe it's, ooh. And then you notice like little things as well, like in the second picture going on. Else, it seems like uh, Afro-surrealism is marked by its longevity. Yeah. So when other elements have come and go, there's something, um, I wouldn't say eternal, but reproducing about it, something that people seem to find mm. for each generation. Uh, yeah. um, there was a, an interesting article that I was reading earlier today, which is that uh, someone was talking about the appropriate, about Malcolm X. It was actually, it was a lecture by Slavoj Zizek, who was talking about how Malcolm X, the interesting thing about his use of the surname X was that he was saying, look, rather than uh, you know, go back to Africa and try and find the roots of what would have been my surname and tie myself back with that history, uh, we've actually, he oh, and, and people, uh, but specifically black Americans, uh, have an opportunity now to carve their own future that is set entirely by themselves in an appeal to a new universality about saying like we are uh, to, to talk about Benji's work, you know, no, we don't have to be tied to whatever was then, but we can recreate ourselves going forward. Um, to kind of, to carve that back into to yeah. realism, it seems like there's an aspect of that impulse of that movement in, in, in Afro surrealistic work is to yeah. rephrase um, objects and symbols that are known and make them into something, you know redefined it and new would you yeah. say that that's part of the the appeal and part of what reproduces this this form of work yeah and i, and I also think that, that I, I guess there's a part of me taking that standpoint as well and and sort of identifying with it and relating it back you know into yeah. sort of this work and that's why the work appeals to me it sort of validates something i think a slightly journalistic question here is that uh, is part of what you like about it is that it validates your your own approach well that's what it is i think it's yeah. like having having people around who are on the same wavelength it's always like and uh it's always like it gives you a sort of i don't know it's an encouraging thing to go forward yeah. and like right yeah okay you're on the right path or whatever I don't right. know. here we've got some uh some work by sammy slebby mm. and uh, frank moff i mean you know again like surrealist working today I and mean, Sammy's like is a Belgian uh, he, he does this incredible he does incredible stuff on, on Instagram for example and he's got the idea of like how looping which is a bit like sampling might start with an egg break the egg open and it all goes weird into something else and then comes back into an egg and the egg breaks up and goes into something you know and he, he creates these like beautiful kind of loop loopy things and then I I, was, I picked the uh the Frank Moth picture because I thought it was uh, very pertinent to today and the masking that we're sort of like getting our heads around and like you're going to wear. <laughs> well, I've been wearing one all my life, but you know that, that 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 masking sort of covers the whole of the of the face. You know, what was your involvement with Lost Highway? You did some music and yeah, yeah. Well, I I did uh, the well, I guess you call it half of the score because at the time when I came on board, it was a four-hour film. I wish I still had uh, uh, a, a cut of that film. I had a I had a cut of it, and um, right at the right at the end, I turned around to David Lynch and said, uh, "Oh, you probably want this back." And he went, "Oh yeah, okay, thanks, Barry." And I thought, "Why did I do that?" You know, <laughs> at the at the four hour version, is just out of its mind. You know, it's like, and uh, wow. so I got to do, with Angelo Badalamenti. We were both doing the school like in different countries and it was really clever because what David was doing was taking parts of my school parts of Angelo's school you know some of my school was just like I call them uh, scary beds so I just put these layers of sound that you could feed underneath the picture that what was going on 
Um, so yeah, that was my my involvement. How did that come about? It's such a an amazing uh, experience, one would imagine. I mean, really, really amazing experience. I mean, it it was a bit like attending a, a a masterclass. You know, I was very lucky. It was it was very strange the circumstances. I have to tell the story of like I needed a hip replacement and I was in a I had it and I was in a wheelchair and I couldn't do anything and I was so kind of like down. So I got some stuff from the studio. Friend brought some stuff over to the studio and I started to write something. I wrote this sort of like noiry, uh, brassy kind of theme, <clears throat> and uh, and then I was just finishing up on it, thinking, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's me. That's what I do. Great. And the phone went, and I picked up the phone, and this voice just went, "Hi, Barry. It's David Lynch." I mean, that's surreal in itself. And he yeah. said, uh, "I've been listening to your music for eight hours straight." No, 10 hours straight. And, I, and then he invited me to do something for the film. And he said, I'll send you a, a scene, but show it to no one. Show it yeah. to no one. And uh, he did. And, um, and so, but what was really weird, it was this, this car chase with this guy called Mr. Eddie. And the, the piece of music that I was working on, I thought, what? No. And I put that to the film, and it worked perfectly. And that's the piece of music that's there to this day. So every cloud as a sort of David Lynch lining thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we're almost out of time, I think. Can we open it up for questions? Uh, do you think there's a parallel between much of your music and surreal imagery, as at the surface it's one thing, but has far deeper water going on? Yeah, I think, I think, that's, uh, to do, I think that's to do with uh, the idea that we all know how music is and how it goes. And, uh, but you have the ability to just play around, you know, and you have the ability to sort of mask certain things and let the other things come up underneath to the surface. And that's all a very kind of uh, cinematic approach for me. They're the ideas that I like to play around with. They're the ideas that I like to sort of, you know, clash cultures, you know, do whatever suits the, 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 the thing I'm trying to get at. You've got a... I don't know, like a, a reference to Marquis Smith. Oh yeah, that was that. You weren't supposed to see that, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I saw that today, and I thought, when did I put that? Ah, oh, I was making a note about a, a new something I was writing. It was to do with like the idea of like this kind of you know clash again, where he had this song called you know, "Repetition." Uh, well, the line "Repetition in the music, and we're never going to lose it." And, yeah. and a lot of songs do this because they adhere to that idea of like repetition. Every beat, it's just the same, the same, the same. And yeah. I had this song going. And Marky Smith's one of those people that I sort of, before I go into a project, I'll sort of go, it's like getting all your kind of mentors and mates and all that sort of stuff to sort of hear your manifesto out and, and bring them on along with you and see that it's all cooking away nicely. And this was happening. And I thought, you know, what's, what's got to happen here is a bit of surrealism got to walk out of this repetition and into sort of something else and if the song ever comes out i wouldn't give the game away but then it, it sort of it, i realized that that's what was doing and, and it's a thrill for for a listener because i think the purpose of art after sort of massaging the suffering of the person that makes it is to give it to an audience you know listener a reader and for them to sort of you know, like levitate out of the everyday you know, that's what happens to me anyway and um you know i'm doing it now no but uh, you know and so i'm constantly finding ways for that to unconsciously to give you force it's a bit like cheesy but if it's going away and it feels great then you know that that somebody listening to that is going to get that effect in the same way well i think barry that's fantastic and we'll leave it there so a, a big round of virtual again big virtual round Thanks again for listening to the Trebuchet Magazine podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform, share us on your social media channel of choice, or consider becoming a subscriber. Every subscriber gets a shout out in the podcast, as well as the great feeling of supporting a truly independent contemporary art voice. We're currently taking pre-orders for issue nine from our website, link in the show notes, where £10 will get you over 140 luxury printed pages on contemporary art, 
which is an absolute steal and won't go bad, unlike a banana taped to a wall. If you'd like us to answer any questions on the podcast or to mention a creative event you think people should know about, do let us know via an email to megan at trebuchet.click. So that's it. Have a very happy new year from all of us here at Trebuchet. Till next time. Bye.